Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Let's look up towards the cosmos, shall we, for the next hour. Prepare yourself for an auditory adventure stimulating your brain and your sense of imagination. Because for the next hour, I am once again very pleased to be joined by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space, and a man who I might add has the best voice in all of radio. Steve, thank you as always for being kind enough to join me this hour. Well, good morning, Frank, and good morning to the listeners. Always great to be back on Talk Radio 77 WABC as we do at what? Another adventure and stimulate our minds on what's above. Uh, there is a great deal to cover, and we're going to try and get it in all, uh, get it all in within the next hour, and uh, we'll try and squeeze in as many phone calls as we can. If people have questions about space or anything related to space, 800-848-WABC. Uh, let me begin with a story that we touched upon a little bit the last time you were here, and that is in light of the new tensions between the Russia, you know, the Russian forces and the United States forces. I had asked what that meant for areas of of cooperation between the Russian space program and the American space program. Now, um, when we were speaking last time, you indicated you didn't think that was going to be that big of a problem. Then we saw reports that Russia was threatening to abandon American astronauts in space as uh, as these sanctions uh, threaten peace aboard the International Space Station. But apparently uh, this story has not ended in a bad place, has it? Absolutely. And I think cooler heads have prevailed, as we know the astronauts both females and male cosmonauts and astronauts, I think they think differently and out of the box. So all we can tell everybody on this program this morning, and it's a very good story, is that there is a successful return to Earth in Kazakhstan as the American astronaut Mark Van de Heij, excuse me, returned with the two Soviet cosmonauts landing on their, with their Soyuz MS-19. That happened yesterday. And it is interesting because the NASA television channel, Frank, was covering this and people maybe out there have had the opportunity to see the whole proceedings. But it's one of the most amazing rides that, you know, I've not done it, but obviously speaking to some of the astronauts who've returned, now that SpaceX has better and, you know, more economical ways and much more luxurious ways to return to Earth, they describe the Soyuz MS-19 return, astronauts in the past, as the express elevator from hell, because you have the seven or eight minutes of time when you're burning through the Earth's atmosphere but no emphasis on burning. Their heat shield needs to protect them. So from the political side, Frank, I think we're better. I think the astronauts and, of course, both the United States and the uh, Russian government have handled this one. We have a record to talk about. Mm. And Mark Vandehei, of course, now sets the American space record of 355 days in space. That's surpassing what Scott Kelly did a while back of 340 days in space. So the other compadres that were on board the Soyuz, as Mark returned to the uh, the good, you know, solid Earth here, Anton Shikapralavrov, 
and Peter Dubrov. They both returned. So everything's back to normal. At least we can say that. But as we talked last time, this ride back is rather tumultuous as far as, you know, the shaking and all kinds of stuff. I don't know how I would feel. How would you feel? Imagine riding that thing. That would be kind of uh, an experience, to say the least. Uh, that that it would. So he was he set the new record for being in space the longest. Is that for just American astronauts, or does that include Russian cosmonauts and everybody else, too? No, this is an American record. The, the Russians were then the Soviets. They obviously have people that have been in space well over 400 days. But it's interesting because Scott Kelly wrote a book, I believe it was called Endurance, about his time in space. And as we might have mentioned to the listeners last time we were on doing this, there is some kind of uh, strange things that happen to the body. You know, the bones tend to get, uh, either they shrink, uh, there could be some issues with the heart. I mean, not fatal, we hope. But uh, we're still learning about the physiology of how astronauts would eventually go to these long-duration missions. And imagine this, as the consensus is now, when we go to Mars, whether it's Elon Musk and the SpaceX team, or whether it's a combination of other nations and NASA, we're still looking, Frank, at about a journey one way between seven to nine months. So we really need to know what the uh, medical side of the effects Absolutely. Uh, on the human body are. Uh, by the way, on the uh, just lastly, on the America-Russia situation, sure. what do you think this means for the future of the International Space Station? That seems to be the place where there's the most cooperation between American astronauts and Russian cosmonauts. Do you think the the tensions, which even if there's a ceasefire, don't appear to be abating between our two countries anytime soon, do you think that puts potential collaboration for projects like that in jeopardy in the future? It It probably does, based on the geopolitical situation. But again, listening and talking to so many of the people in the space industry on this during this, you know, past couple of weeks, their hope, and so is mine, and I'm sure yours, and probably many of the listeners, of course, is that we return to this ISS, finish out the program. But I've heard all different theories on the evolution of the space uh, station, the ISS. Some say that it'll be turned into a hotel maybe in the next eight to ten years. Others say that it probably should be deorbited because it's maybe used up its uh, you know existing lifetime up there. It's quite a big object. You know, we're looking at something about the size of a football field. And I'm amazed at this, Frank, when people who have fairly large telescopes on the Earth, and I'm not talking about these giant observatory telescopes. I have friends. I don't know how to do it. I've tried it, and I can't do it. They track the ISS as it goes across the night sky, and we'll talk later in our live sky portion about how people can actually see this with the naked eye. But they're actually capturing the images. Space Station's up about 260 miles, nautical miles up. They're actually seeing the different segments and the solar panels, and one guy just got an image, how about this, of the spacewalkers outside of the ISS from the ground with a telescope that's not even that large. Wow. That's amazing. Wow, that is amazing. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you have questions. A couple of people already queuing up. Let's uh, uh, not keep these folks waiting. Let me start with Bill in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Hi. Okay. Good, good morning, now, Bill. Uh, good morning. Once upon a time... There was a Frenchman named Lacal, and while the guillotine was chopping people's heads off, he ran away to South Africa for several years, and he drew star charts, okay? My question is, what kind of doofus names a constellation (laughs) Fornax the Metallurgical Furnace? You know, I love this, Bill. This is awesome, and here's the answer that I give. I get this question a lot. 
the southern hemisphere, which we don't see in the New York or in North America really that much, down here in Phoenix we get a little bit of it. It's so incredible. John Herschel, the son of William Herschel, is partially responsible for this. You're right. Farnax, the furnace, there's a chisel up there in the sky. <laughs> there's there's a water clock. I haven't seen a water clock in years, have you, Bill? So there's there's so many of these constellations. It's it's almost like they ran out of imagination. But it's even more incredible, guys, and everybody listening, that they you know, we have the zodiac signs, we have all these animals and we even have a balance, Libra. But it's so incredible, Bill, you're right. Who the heck would name something like after a furnace? And there's even uh, other kind of things. There's a fly down there called Musca. Uh, there's a chameleon in the sky. I mean, it's amazing. But some of these things that they came up with, how about this? There's an air pump in the sky in the Southern Hemisphere. So I think they needed to get a little more creative. And they're very faint constellations, by the way. Thank you, Bill. Uh, Mario is in Brooklyn. Hello, Mario. Hello, gentlemen. Um I have two two brief questions. I I I read that in 2023 the the, the orbit of the moon is going to be wobbling and uh it may affect the tides on earth and there might be coastal flooding. Mm-hmm. And I also saw on the news tonight that the Voyager, if I'm not mistaken, found a new star in the constellation that may be the furthest one that they have noted? Yes, there's interesting answers. Mario, thank you for the call, and thank you for the questions. We'll go to the 2023 story about the moon. Everybody listening, Mario included, we don't have to worry. The moon is not going to do anything unusual. It's just a fact, and Frank, this is important. The moon moves away from us by centimeters a year, which is hardly noticeable. I mean, if you even look at a ruler, you know, you have to see what a small increment that is. And in terms of everything, we're talking like inches. I mean, this is a minuscule thing. So there's nothing really to worry about in the short term. The moon, as Mario was talking about, is so important to the tides on the Earth. Without it, obviously, this would be a rather boring place. But this is interesting. The Voyager spacecraft did not detect this object that we're going to talk about. The Hubble Space Telescope actually, get a load of this, just discovered and detected. This is late breaking news. The farthest star ever detected. Now, what does that mean? It's 12.8 billion light years away, which means that the star formed around 900-ish million years after the Big Bang or the Big Explosion. And astronomers have named it, interestingly enough, after one of these Gothic uh, English characters in literature called Arendelle. And what's interesting about this is, I think that's an amazing question, Mario, that you're asking, because we have yet not yet detected anything that far out into the cosmos. And guess what? The real great news is, why, where do you think, and well, what do you think when happens with the uh, James Webb Telescope gets its hands on it? We'll be able to learn so much more. So, two interesting questions. Absolutely, Al's in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Dr. Morning, Cates. You're my favorite guest on this fine show. Well, thank uh, you. I, well, I, I appreciate all your uh, your knowledge that you're, uh, and entertainment. Yeah, I have you, two sir. brief questions. One was uh, concerning this. When you're looking from Earth, I, I understand that the Earth is four times bigger than the moon. Yes, sir. And I also understand that uh, the sun is 400 times the size of Earth. But when you look at the sky, it seems like the sun and the moon are almost the same uh, size. Is that because of that? Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Well, Al, it's interesting. The sun and the moon, thank goodness they are the same size, because if the sun was appearing to be 400 times the size of what we see the moon, I think we would be a rather what, Frank, a rather toasty day indeed. (laughs) 
But, Al, no, being on a serious note here, that's interesting. I call this, this is something interesting. If you think back philosophically, there's something called sacred geometry here. And if you look at all these other planets in the solar system, why does Earth have one moon? Why does Mercury and Venus have none? Why does Jupiter have so many and Saturn many more? The interesting thing is we have something here called sacred geometry. And without it, Al, we would never be able to have the eclipses that we have. And next year, we'll talk about it in future shows, I hope, with Frank, that we're going to have in October of 2023 one of these annular eclipses where the moon is farthest away. So it's as like if you had a quarter, let's say, on the table and you put a nickel on top of it, a lot of the quarter is still visible. That's when the moon is far away, called apogee. But the most amazing one is when we have, Al, when we have the moon and the sun in the sky and the moon covers up the sun totally for a total solar eclipse. But there's nothing to worry about as far as the sun being 400 times the size you know, of, of what we see in our sky of the moon. But you're so right, Al, from the lunar surface, as Dr. Edgar Mitchell told me in person many times, you bet, you got it right. The Earth would be four times the diameter of what we see a full moon. I'd love to go now, don't you think, guys? Wouldn't that be fun to do that? It would be indeed. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about Solar Cycle 25. Uh, oh, yes. Apparently, Solar Cycle 25 is here, and right. the activity related to it is uh, increasing rapidly. What exactly is Solar Cycle 25, and what precisely is increasing with respect to solar activity? Well, every 11 and a half years, we know we go through this ebb and flow of sunspot activity, but there's really a deeper cycle of sunspot activity. But since they've been keeping track of these, we go back 11 times 25, and then we would have at least when they started to seriously look at the sun. Now, I'm privy to a solar telescope here, and I take it out as often as I can. I look directly at the sun. It's a piece of equipment you don't need. It's already got the filters built into it. So what I'm saying is I'm following this very closely, Frank, and to pass this on to the listeners, here we go. Solar Cycle 25 supposedly started at the end of December of last year. Solar Cycle 24 was hanging on, and Solar Cycle 24 was not really that strong, but it wasn't all that weak either. So what happened is Solar Cycle 24 was on the sun. Solar Cycle 25 tried to get started, and they were fighting each other. So astronomers know that there's something called a termination event, real simple. The termination event is when one cycle ends magically and by the solar physics side, and the new one begins. But right now, on the sun, and this is interesting, if people go to a website called spaceweather.com, you can follow along. Sunspot Group, Active Region 2975, is this really strange-looking, it almost looks like acne would look on skin, and that's the best description I can give. But here it is. It's been pumping out M-class flares. What are those? Those are some of the medium-density or intensity flares. But today, it pumped out an X-class flare. Now, what is the difference? On like a logarithmic scale, it's like, you know, 10 to the 10 to the 10. This X-class flare is a 1 out of 9. So what does that mean? It means that the sun has been belching out a couple of these flares the past few days, and that this big flare is sending out energy. So what they're going to have, and it's actually going to strike the Earth maybe even now or into early tomorrow morning, possibility as we get a G2-class solar storm or a G3, that's pretty high, which means the northern lights may be seen farther south, But what's interesting about this, and I find this fascinating, is that this is paling by comparison to some of the great solar storms in history. We know the 1859 Carrington event was massive. If it happened today, we'd probably lose most of our satellites and all of our technology electronically. Let's go back to the Bastille Day solar storm. That was July 14th of 2000. Frank, that was an X5 flare. That's pretty powerful from an X1. And that disrupted so much communications 
you know, in radio here on the earth and all things like that. But the most prolific one, and I'm, st- I'm still confused about this one, it was called the Halloween Flare or the Halloween event, October the 28th of 2003. Frank, I don't make this stuff up. It was an X45 wow. on the scale. But it, luckily, the solar flare hit on the side of the sun and didn't hit the Earth directly. But there's all different types of flares. We have C-class flares, which are minimal, M-class flares, which go up in intensity, then the X-flares. But there's a lot of dynamics to this whole thing. But the solar flare that's when it when came off the sunspot group, the M-class ones, a few days ago, the big one, the X one, is going to be the one that came out earlier. And they call this a cannibal event. So it's going to be a cannibal flare, meaning it's going to absorb all the energy as this big one catches up to the slower ones, and it gives us a big oomph on the Earth. Are we worried about satellites falling from the sky? Probably not. But the point is, now astronomers are saying, here we go, I always like to be positive, that the next calculation that they did, well, the first calculation they did on the cycle of solar cycle 25 was moderate. Now they're saying they were probably wrong, and this one will probably be a bit more, and I put that in quotes, intense than solar cycle 24. And what does that mean we're in store for on this planet in terms of disruptions to electronics, radio signals? What does that mean for us if it is going to be uh, a bit more intense than solar cycle 24? Well, here's information coming to us as it's late breaking news. This X-class flare, which is a one point something on the scale of one to nine. And as I mentioned before, some of these were like up to 45. Those are super rare. Thank God. But what it can do, and it's already done this, there's an image on spaceweather.com that shows you, I believe, right now live, it shows you that the radio information in short wave has been blacked out in certain areas, and it's actually over the United States right now. And people that fly these big aircraft, you know, passenger jets that fly up over the pole, they could have a little difficulty communicating on what they call HF, high-frequency, you know, radio frequencies, 56 on the megahertz scale on the short wave band has been blacked out. But the worst of all these is when the CME, which is a coronal mass ejection, different than a solar flare, because the solar flare travels, remember this, at the speed of light. So that happens pretty quick when it reaches the Earth. But the CME events are much slower. They take hours, if not days, to actually get here. That's what we were talking about before with these big CMEs. But there's a big distinct difference. Flares were thought to cause CMEs, but many people believe now that the energy is stored in the solar corona, in a different way, which is the outer atmosphere, the sun has an atmosphere. And I tell that to people, they go, well, wait a minute, does it have oxygen? Not that kind of oxy- I mean, atmosphere. It's a different plasma. It's a strange thing. It's like this, the, the corona of the sun is way hotter than the surface of the sun. How does that happen? That's one of the great paradigms and mysteries in physics. But the bottom line for what could happen here, if you get one of these big solar flares and CMEs, radio disruptions, electronics, I mean, we could have satellites that have... You know, we're, we're such what? I don't need to remind everybody, Frank. We're such a digitally dependent world. Oh, yeah. We're at the mercy of the sun. And remember, all the weather comes from the sun. No matter what people say, pro or con, on the climate change debate, all weather is produced by the sun. And the most prolific polluter of all on the planet is not the humans. And I'm not anti, you know, climate change. Obviously, that's not my point. It's that volcanic activity is still the prima facie number one thing. How do you control the carbon dioxide and all that? Like we had the Hunga Tonga explosion on the, uh, you know, the underground, the underground, the undersea volcano that spewed out and still shows us even here in Arizona and probably in the New York area and the listeners of Talk Radio 77 WABC, the look to the west and the sunsets and they're beautiful. They're full of sulfuric dust and 
you know, all kind of particulates from, uh, you know, natural, natural things in nature. Uh, very interesting. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll continue. If you have questions, now's the time to ask them. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Uh, Frank Moreno here with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you want to see more of Dr. Sky's work, read more about some of the stories we're talking about. And uh, if you're interested in this subject, then do check out the Dr. Sky blog at KTAR.com. A ton of great stuff on there. I steal show ideas from there all the time, and uh, it's a big part of my regular news consumption. You should check it out, too. KTAR.com, the Dr. Sky blog. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is one of those shows, ladies and gentlemen, where whatever you're into, we are going to scratch your itch today. If you're into space, you're going to hear a lot about space. If you're into the criminal justice system, you're going to hear a lot about that. If you're interested in gambling, you're going to hear a lot about that. If you're interested in ping pong or diplomacy with North Korea, you're going to hear a lot about that. But this hour... Uh, I am joined by not only one of my favorite guests, but uh, one of the listeners' fan favorites, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a broadcaster par excellence, somebody who has a great deal of expertise when it comes to both astronomy and space. He is what they call an edutainer. He educates us as he entertains us. Steve, um, a lot of people very eager to talk with you. Let's squeeze in a, a couple of calls here. Let me say hello to Chris on Staten Island. Hello, Chris. Yeah, I have two quick questions. Uh, two, three years ago, there were a lot of stories about uh, the true North Pole coming further south yes. than it usually does. And there was also stories about the poles swapping. But I haven't heard anything about that in the last couple of years. Are there any updates on this? Or? Interesting, Chris. Thank you for the call here, and good morning. Basically, what's happened here was a long time in history before we actually could identify what's called a magnetic pole and simply the explorers that went to the actual geographic North Pole. But I've been hearing the same thing, that every year the pole slowly moves from the North Polar position, slightly off-center of that zero, you know, the total 90 degrees north. But on the other hand, there's also the changes in the magnetic field pole, and that apparently is located somewhere up in the tundra area of Canada. Not sure why it happens, but I think, again, talking about this solar situation here, a lot of things do affect the Earth, and we do go through this pole change or regression. And I think they're not to be exact, and if I don't know something, I'm always going to be honest with you and the listeners. The interesting part about this, it's thousands and thousands of years of polar shift, and I'm even small and conservative on my numbers. But if that were to happen relatively quick, that would be a bad day for everybody. Because so many things that we depend on here with the plus-minus situation, let's hope and pray that doesn't happen anytime soon. But, Chris, appreciate the good and intellectual questions there. They're awesome. Steve, let me ask you about the X-37B. This is apparently a new a new space plane uh, courtesy of the Space Force. What do we know about the Boeing X-37, also known as the Orbital Test Vehicle? 
Well, this is something really strange. It goes back since April of 2010. Now, what is this? It's a little tiny, like if you looked at a miniature space shuttle, 29 feet long, 15-foot wingspan. Now, that's small compared to the shuttle, which was 122 feet long. I remember once at the Cape, we were standing there, and we were getting this special tour of going out to see some of these launch sites that we haven't seen in years on a special tour where John Glenn launched, of course, going in his orbital flight, and sadly, where the Apollo 1 astronauts perished. But I was looking at a big, giant stack, meaning a rocket inside a hangar. And as I'm ready to get my camera, two security people told me, lose the camera. And I said, really? And they said, yes. What was in there was the X-37B. What is it? And since Space Force, Frank, was formed back in December of 2019, now in the news, and again, we don't always believe everything we read on the Internet, of course, but we're saying this is possibly true. There may be more of a military use in space for this. And for now, we're knowing that it's testing so many of these new engines. They're called xenon propulsion, very technical stuff. You know, they, blow, they, they give off like blue gas, and it's kind of cool. It's like Star Wars technology. This has been developed by Boeing and DARPA. That's the secret part of the government that does all these research projects. But get a load of this. It's on a mission right now, OTV-6, for well over 700 days. Wow. And it's very interesting. And tomorrow <clears throat> here in Arizona, and everybody can do this if you go to heavens-above.com, as I mentioned, and also at the end of the show, I hope to give everybody some opportunities of times to see, like the space station and even the X-37B, I have a couple of times for the listening area, too. But tomorrow night, and I've seen it before, it goes by real fast, but it's only a little 29-foot-long object, but it's testing something else, too. Now, this is what the government has released, of all the things that we don't know. It's solar-powered, but it's testing something with an acronym called PRAM-FX. What is it? It's turning sunlight into microwaves to be able to beam it down from space to be able to one or two things, and again, I'm not the physicist who designed this, just the one who's reporting, and hopefully from what I'm reading is accurate here, and I think it is, that it will be able to take energy in space, beam down in microwaves, so you could transmit or transport that energy down. So in other words, it's like a solar energy collector where you could beam it microwave-wise to another destination and download it, like a wireless transmission on your, on your phone. That's great technology. But this little thing is interesting. Now, the nefarious side of this, some speculate, and again, I don't know if it's totally accurate, just reporting what I've read, and again, it could be incorrect, that there could be a military use of this, where this could be utilized in space warfare, God forbid, if we had to destabilize or take down other spacecraft that were hostile, and again, we weren't drawing first blood. So more to say about it, it's just an incredible piece of technology and it has a little tiny cargo bay in the back. But if you looked at it, if people go out and Google it, it's the coolest little thing. It, and it lands, it, it takes off in a rocket, on top of a rocket, but it lands on a runway just like a space shuttle did. Kind of cool. Uh, very cool. I mean, the thing that's so interesting about it, the mission is 700 days? Yes, and it's autonomous. Interesting. So it, let's imagine this. Out at uh, Creech Air Force Base, where's that? If people drive just to the west as they head up toward, you know, from Las Vegas to, to Reno. I've passed it many times, Creech Air Force Base. I don't see a lot of airplanes coming out of there. It's where primarily, and I'm not revealing any, revealing any you know, national secrets here, there are a number of these around the world. They use the Predator drones and the other Global Hawks there. And there's people that sit in the control room. And again, if anybody out there has a real fascination with video games and they're looking for employment, could you imagine that would be a great place to go because it's like playing a big video game. So I imagine this X-37B 
is also controlled somewhat. It's also autonomous. That You can actually sit there and tell it to do things. And uh, how about the technology? That's pretty bizarre. Mm, uh, that is for sure. 800-848-WABC. Let's say hello to Janet in Manhattan. Hello, Janet. Hi. Thank you, Frank. I have a question I've been wondering about for years. It's about radio and the sun. Why is it that when the sun goes down, I can get like, they say you can get 38 stations. I get about sure. 30. If I had a better radio, uh, I could hear, I hear stations from Canada. I'm in New York. Sure. You know, I can pick up two, two uh stations from from Ontario. What is it, and why does it affect AM only? There's not a single FM station that I can get at night that I can't get during the day. Sure. So the question really is, what does the sun do during the day when it's up there that interferes with all these radio signals that sure. I can get at night? Great question. Well good, well, good morning, John, and here's the basic answer. In the daytime, the sun is stimulating with its, you know, photons, light energy particles, and it's affecting what we call the ionosphere, which is this other layer of the Earth's atmosphere. So at night, it generally will calm down. And when radio stations, a lot of them, like we have here in Phoenix, out there in New York, anywhere around the country, some of these radio stations, right, Frank, are 50,000-watt clear channels. So they broadcast at night. You know, you can hear what, Frank, WABC? I, can, I remember oh. hearing them once all the way down in uh, Arkansas when I was driving once at night. Seriously. Oh, no. Uh, we get calls from all over the country. In oh, fact no. I'm sure it's even more powerful. Uh, but, but, Janet, this is interesting. What happens is the changes in that ionosphere, because it's reflective. So at night, these stations that are not as powerful, or let's say the big ones, are able to be heard because their signal can be bounced off the top of this ionosphere, and it's not being affected by the daytime, uh, you know, radiation that's coming from the sun, which which changes the whole dynamic of the whole ionosphere. So hey, I'm a big fan of all these radio stations. I remember just like many out there when I was a kid, I'd obviously listening up and growing up in New York, listening to WABC, of course. But at night, I could pick up stations all the way down, and I think there was a really funny one, right, Frank and Janet down in Del Rio, Texas, or even in Mexico. It was called X-Rock 80. And oh, I think yeah. Wolfman Jack used to broadcast, and I think they alleged to have 150,000 or more watts, which was, what, illegal in the U.S.? Exactly. But you could hear them all the way to Jupiter. <laughs> exactly. Uh, great question, Janet. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. We've been hearing a lot about the James Webb Space Telescope, and um, a caller called me on Friday, and he asked... And I, you know, I gave the most ham-handed explanation and said I would ask you about this. Uh, yes. He asked for some clarification over the reports that he's seen, and I think other people have seen as well, that the James Webb telescope could allow us to see what happened thousands of years ago in the past in yes. different parts of the galaxy or maybe even in other galaxies. I'm wondering if you can give us an update on the James Webb Telescope in general and explain that concept to people. How are Absolutely. we uh, potentially going to see things, or events, uh, structures that lived and existed thousands of years ago? Well, it's a great question. And, and to give that person an answer, everybody. This amazing telescope has pretty much been flawless. I mean, here we are about a million miles away from the Earth itself, sitting in this little orbit that's out there at one of those L2 points, you know, the so-called stabilized point. Now all the mirrors are aligned, and the first image comes through of a non-discrete star where you can see the thing is perfectly in alignment. But remember, this telescope is more of an infrared instrument. So what we're trying to say is to answer the question, 
is that when the universe allegedly expanded, I like the word expansion better than explosion, because an explosion indicates that if we were here, we weren't. Where did the explosion happen? It didn't happen near the Earth. It happened out there somewhere in time and space. But the point is, the James Webb Telescope will be able to peer deeper and deeper and deeper into the past because the ability of its mirror, remember, it's 21 feet in diameter made up of these individual hexagonal mirrors that are gold-plated. I mean, gosh, this thing's incredible and incredibly expensive. Simply, without a lot of words, it will be able to peer back because of the ability for it to go deeper and deeper into what we call magnitude. Remember, the faintest star you can see with the naked eye in really dark locations, depending on your eyesight, if you have good eyesight with no corrective lenses, is a plus six. These telescopes, like here in Arizona and other places, the large telescopes on the mountains, they can push down to plus 32, which is amazing, meaning I'm seeing deeper and deeper into the past. So James Webb, I can only imagine. I mean, I'm making this part up. Maybe it can see plus 50s, but it means it'll get closer to seeing when that Big Bang explode, or excuse me, expanded. But the question that one of the listeners had before was about this object, and I mentioned the Hubble Space Telescope just detected the farthest star, and it picked one up at 12.8 billion light years, only 900 or so thousand years after the uh, expansion. So can you only imagine how deep this one should be able to go back? Almost to the beginning of the expansion, we hope. So basically, the, some of the images that, the because of the speed of light, because um, some of the images that the James Webb Telescope or the Hubble Telescope sees of stars are of stars that aren't still there. It's just taking a while for the light of that star to yes. reach the James Webb Telescope or the Hubble Telescope? Yeah, it's a good analogy. And I think if you look at it this way, Frank, this is important for the listeners to know. If you look back, I doubt we'll be able to see 13.8 billion years to the explosion or the expansion. But the point is, those, those objects have been, the light's been traveling so far, that's how long it took to get here. So you're right, it, those objects may not even exist in time and space mm. right now. Because if you look at the speed of light, and again, not to conduct a physics class here on the show, but the important part is, we were told in school, 186,282 miles per second. That means nothing to me. I mean, think about it. Most people, if you're driving your car, you go, what does that mean? Here's what the <laughs> speed of light is in miles per hour. So I said this funny to a couple of people. You ever get pulled over by a police officer, a man or a woman, and you were speeding, maybe you can talk yourself out of a ticket and say, ah, I wasn't going that fast. Well, you, officer or man or sir, do you know how fast the speed of light is in miles per hour? <laughs> and they may think you're a wise guy or a wise woman, but here's the answer. The speed of light compared to how fast you were going over the speed limit, get a load of this, folks, is 670 million miles per hour. Wow. Wow. That means a lot, doesn't it, versus the 186,282 miles per second, which I can't understand. Now, do we have any idea if when we look up at the night sky with the naked eye right now, for instance, do we have any idea if the stars that we're seeing in the night sky are still there or are just the the light from stars that may have existed long ago? Well, they're all, it's a time machine. So we go out here like in our skies, in New York skies, the WABC listening audience skies. Anytime you look at a star, let's take one. In the evening sky, if you look toward the south sunset, no matter where you're listening, the brightest star in the heavens is a star called Sirius. It's you know, 8.611 light years away. I know that because we talk about it all the time. We're pretty sure that that star more than likely is still there. But think about it. The light left 8.611 years ago. But look at some of these other objects. The farthest object, Frank, that you basically can see with the naked eye or with a pair of binoculars is the Andromeda Galaxy. 
And that on even I've, I've even seen it from the Central Park. And I'm not kidding with a pair of binoculars. You have to look carefully. That object's 2.4 million light years away. So it's problematic that with the farther distances, maybe those objects are not there. Who knows? But with the near things, the bright stars that you see at night, the distances range anywhere up to at least a thousand light years. They're probably still there, but maybe even they're on their way out, too. We don't know. Uh, very interesting. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Paul is in Yonkers. Paul, you're on with Steve Cates. Frank, I know we call on another subject. I'm retired NYPD detective, 35 yes, years sir. experience, two master's degrees. I had the pleasure of interviewing Walter Andrus of MUFON about 10 years ago. And I've interviewed thousands. He wasn't lying. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't looking for attention. I was curious what your uh, guest opinion of MUFON in general and Walter Andrus in particular. That's the uh, Mutual UFO Network for people that don't know. Yes, sir. Paul, thank you for your service first. But let me say this. This is interesting. If you look at this whole perspective here, I certainly have had my time behind the microphone, like Frank's doing a great job and everybody else that does this as a, as a profession. And I've had the honor of interviewing so many of these people. And let me say this, MUFON, I've had them side by side when we've had many presentations. We did a whole thing with the History Channel on the Project Blue Book. I think that's a great organization to go out there and help identify in a way that probably most people are not even aware of thousands and thousands of UFO sightings. We don't know. And I'm always open. You know, I've never met an extraterrestrial. I don't know what I would do if I did. But the reality is, I think they're a good organization that really, truly uh, lays it on the line. And now, as the whole change of UFOs, it's now called what? UAP is an identified aerial phenomenon. And I'm really interested. uh, And I'd like to read more of what MUFON's doing or even have us to say about these Tic Tacs that Navy F-18 pilots have seen uh, over the last decade and probably even more that we don't know about. So I think they're a good organization that's doing a good public service to keep the idea alive that we're probably not alone in this universe. Uh, speaking of stargazing, as the whether it's tonight or going forward in the coming weeks, what is exciting in the night sky these days? What can people see with the naked eye? What can they see yes. with binoculars? What can they see with the telescope? Great question, Frank. Live sky is what we talk about, what people can see. So here, folks, I'll say it twice, because if you want to jot this down, it might be of interest to you. The International Space Station will pass over the New York listening area in the East Coast on on March the 31st, which is tonight for everybody there, of course, March the 31st, the last day of this month. And what will be coming out of the sky, out of the northwest sky, moving to the east at 8.32 p.m. So if your skies are clear... Just remember, the best information you'll get on this is to go to heavens-above.com, plug in your city if it's not the New York listening area or wherever, of course, WABC is proudly heard around the country. It'll be bright, about as bright as Jupiter, which is pretty darn bright, and you'll be able to see it sail across the sky. It'll be an impressive sight. And then if you miss that, on April the 2nd, which I believe is Saturday, Saturday evening, an even brighter pass, moving from the northwest of the southeast at 8.33 p.m. local time, this is Eastern Daylight Time. It nearly gets overhead at 8.33 p.m. in the evening. This one is about as bright as Venus gets in the sky. And remember, it's moving 17,000 miles an hour, and you're seeing it uh, about 260 miles from where your eyeballs are up to the sky. And then on Friday evening, we actually have something else. The X-37B 
probably need a pair of binoculars for this if you have a dark sky. City dwellers, obviously, it's going to be a little difficult. 7.47 p.m., the object will be moving toward the south. And actually, the easiest way to see this, it goes right under the brightest star in the sky, which is down in the south-southwest at sunset, the bright star Sirius. So I would train my binoculars on Sirius right around 7.46 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And if you see something moving from the left to the right, you'll be seeing, excuse me, from the right to the left, I should say, excuse me, you're seeing the X-37B, the little tiny 29-foot-long spacecraft moving across the sky. And that's only the beginning. Uh, so that's, pretty, that's pretty neat. Uh, and yeah. Now, in terms of um, in May, I understand that there's actually a possibility of a string meteor shower. What yeah. is a string meteor shower? Well, this is something off the charts here, and this this news just came to me the other day, and that's why I thought it'd be great for the listeners to hear it. Every once in a while, as these comets, all meteor showers come from comets. Now, there was this comet that's going around the sun every 5.4 years. It's called Comet Swassman-Walkman 3, two individuals, that's their two last names. It was discovered back in May of 1930. And what's happened to this comet, it's not even a a phenomenally bright comet, the comet split up in 1995, literally the nucleus got so violently shaken by the solar wind, it just cracked up. And in 2006, astronomers determined that it came up to about 68 pieces are flying around out there. So here's what they're saying, and I say this with caution. If you have a clear sky on the night of May 30th into the 31st, and we'll talk about this hopefully in more detail as it comes up, there could be a rather interesting but short-lived meteor shower, maybe a storm, And we haven't had one of these for a long time. And this could be interesting, Frank, because it's called the Tau Herculid meteor shower, the Greek letter Tau. Hercules, the constellation, will, of course, get you more details as this this develops. But if that's true, and I've seen some of these strange little meteor showers, not the regular ones like the Perseids, the Orionids. These come every so often. And just remember, the most amazing meteor shower that was probably recorded in North America was on the morning of November the 16th, 1966. I didn't live in Arizona then. I was a proud New Yorker, as I still am. And down in southern Arizona in Tucson, the Leonid meteor shower did something weird. At around 5.30 in the morning, people were on top of the mount uh, where the big telescope at Kitt Peak is. And they were pretty much given up because the night wasn't that great with meteors. Now, I didn't make this stuff up at all. Between about 5.30 in the morning and 6 a.m., there were 500,000 meteors an hour seen for about 20 minutes. Now, that would have been one show to see. It was like as if you were driving through a blinding snowstorm at 100 miles an hour, which you don't do. Can you imagine seeing all that coming out of the sky at one time? That was amazing. I, I can't imagine. That must have been something. 800-848-WABC. We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a minute. Meantime, if you want to uh, look into some of the issues we're talking about and see the Dr. Sky blog, you can find that at ktar.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. 
sunshine, lollipops and rainbows. Everything that's wonderful is what I feel when we're together. Brighter than a lucky penny when you're near the rain goes, disappears, dear. And I feel so fine just to know that you are mine. My life is sunshine, lollipops and rainbows. That's how this rain goes, so come on, join in. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, chatting this hour with one of our favorite guests. We will take your calls at uh, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. In terms of uh, anything related to space, astronomy, the stars, the moon, you name it, now's the time. Steve, you know, uh, I was uh, talking with a friend of mine a couple hours ago, and I mentioned some upcoming plans that I have on uh, April 16th. And she said, oh, you better be careful that day. It's a full moon. And, and it, led me to, it led me to thinking of the question, why do people tend to freak out when there's a full moon? Or uh, uh, charitably, why do they act a little Oddly, at times, when there's a full moon, or is that just sort of a a myth created by werewolf novels? Well, it's actually both. And the wolf thing is called lycanthropy, which is like, you know, howling at the moon. So many sci-fi movies around that, the wolfman, dot, dot, dot. But it's interesting, Frank, the gravitational pull that the moon has. Ask many women, many of that are, you know, ready to give birth. They've also said that they felt a little different at the time when the moon's gravity was pulling, because it's a tidal thing, maybe in a micro scale, too. But it's so incredible. This moon that we're talking about in April will be the full pink moon. And it also heralds in the season of Passover, obviously, and the seasons of Easter. And if we look at the calendar, the actual date of Easter, it's very interesting how it's fixed. And I hope I get this right, because people ask me all the time. It's the first full moon after the first Sunday after the vernal equinox. So since the March 20th date was the vernal equinox, the next full moon, which occurs right after that, that is the next Sunday, is after the date of April the 16th, that is the full pink moon, and voila, what do you get? On the date of the Sunday the 17th, we have the date of Easter. But April, Frank, is going to be an interesting month, too, because it's rather strange. There's many things to see in the sky we didn't finish. There's two new moons. April 1st is a new moon. Then there's one on April the 30th. There's a partial solar eclipse somewhere in the world. We won't see it in this listening area. But then we have another thing going on with planets. This is fascinating. If you get up in the morning, look into the east. We've talked about it for months. Venus, still the dominant planet, the brightest of all. But what's happening is on April the 4th, you'll see this if you have a pair of binoculars better. Mars and Saturn will come within a quarter of a degree together. That's a significant conjunction. And that hasn't happened since 1779 that close. And the next one will be in the year 2949 A.D. But we got the best for last. On the morning of April 30th, this is a, don't miss this one, Venus, so bright, and Jupiter, very bright, not as bright as Venus, will come together with the diameter of about that of a full moon on the morning of April 30th, and that's a beautiful sight. That's also going back into, like, biblical history as some of the answers to what the magical star of Bethlehem was, as we know the three wise men and their travels. That has a lot to do, and it's very philosophic and, I think, very beautiful. Absolutely. Uh, no, that sounds uh, that sounds terrific. All right. A lot of folks queuing up to chat with you. If you want to jump on board, we have four lines open, 800-848-9222. Nick is in Whippany, New Jersey. Hello, Nick. Oh, hi, Frank. How are you doing? Yeah. Good morning. I'm going to try to phrase my question so that I can make sense with it. 
okay, uh, you were saying that when you look into the sky and look at, into the stars, you're looking into the past. Well, my yeah. question is, when the star is sh- is shining, if the star's light goes out, does the light continue to the earth or does the light stop immediately? Like you can't really tell like if you shine a laser because it's right. instantaneous. Like, but when, if the light cuts off from, say from our sun, if the light cuts mm-hmm. off from our sun, does it stop to us instantaneously? Because from the earth to the sun, the light should continue for another eight minutes. Right. So You're absolutely the, right. Well, Nick, good morning. That, and thank, thank you for these questions and concerns. Yeah. You're right. If the sun were just to turn off, you know, like a light bulb, yeah. It would have happened eight and a half minutes before because it takes eight and a half minutes for the light to get from the sun to the earth. But when you're looking at these stars, Nick, this is interesting. Let's say whatever you see in the night sky, that's the way they were at the time that the distance factors involved. So in other words, let's take Sirius, the bright star we talked about, 8.6 light years away. That light left 8.6 years ago, to make it very simple. Of course, everybody understands that. But we don't know. Let's say something happened in real time from our perspective on Sirius, as we call it, our time now. We wouldn't know about it for another 8.6 years, meaning if the star exploded or it disappeared. So the farther you go back, that's how long the light has been traveling to get to your eye. Don't know if it's still there now. Very good question. Thank you, Nick. Ted is in Forest Hills. Hello, Ted. Thanks. God bless you. It's always a pleasure. I wanted to ask the doctor, are the yes, Mars sir. explorers, uh, you know, the one with the helicopter, mm-hmm. uh, still working? Yes, they are. And it's interesting. Perseverance has done a, no- a yeoman's job of being able to do so much great science. But even more interesting, the answer is yes to both. This particular little tiny drone is flying in an atmosphere that's nothing like that of Earth. And it's done amazing things. Little ingenuity. We had Frank on our show and Nick. Out here in Arizona, the, the the people that were the project directors of that, and I'm still baffled how they can get that thing to fly. But the little secret they told me, guys, is that the speed of the propeller is much, much greater than what you would have naturally here on the Earth because of the lack and changes of atmospheric pressure. They're still working and a lot more science to come. Mm, uh, interesting. Bob in Queens. Hello, Bob. Hey, how you doing, Doctor? Uh, morning, I, I feel on a lot of these shows... Uh, they talk about expansion and how the universe may end and quiet and dark. And then I see other shows where they say that Andromeda is on a collision course with the Milky Way galaxy yes. one day. I was just on, trying to understand how they, everything could be expanding away from each other and then the two galaxies can still be heading towards each other. That's one of the best questions we've ever had, Bob. And this is interesting, Frank, what he's talking about. You know, this is interesting when we talk about the Andromeda galaxy. I mentioned before, 2.4 million light years away. But what's going to happen to that as everything's moving along, these objects have different differential speeds anyway. So our galaxy is turning around like this big you know, hurricane or a cyclone. It's, we go around in the orbit there every 260 million years. That's another one. But what's happening is, and this is pretty specific, I mean, God help us, this is a long time in the future. We have a lot of things to prepare for, right, Frank? Four billion years from now, the Milky Way will be attacked or hit by the Andromeda galaxy and then it will merge together as it destroys so many stars. That's going to be a pretty violent thing. Sorry, folks. It'll be called the Milcomita Galaxy. But, again, Bob and Frank and everybody listening, I don't think we have too much to worry about. <laughs> but, no, but on a serious note, since everything seems to be expanding, 
there are differential speeds within that. So things can actually move at a little different rate and velocity, but yet everything is moving outward. Interesting. Okay. Great question, Bob. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Uh, Steve, I have to ask you about this story. Uh, some people might think it's a little outlandish, but uh, let me run it by you anyway. A um, Dr. David Jacobs, a professor of at Temple University, he's written a number of books on alien abductions. He's interviewed supposed subjects about their experiences and the Daily Star has an article today saying that he claims to have formed a sinister conclusion from their testimony, which is at least the way the Daily Star puts it. And I've invited him on the show. I've yet to hear back. And he's a sure. professor of history, not astronomy or, or anything like that. He um, believes that aliens abducting are abducting humans on Earth before a full invasion um, have you have you seen this reported, and what, if anything, is your take on this? Well, I've read this report, Frank, and I find it interesting, and I want to do all due respect to the good Dr. Jacobs. I respect his opinion, but I think the problem in this country and I think around the world today is the demonization of debate. You know, a lot of times people want to debate subjects, and one side's screaming at the other, let them speak. But the reality is, from my perspective from astronomy, Unless I'm one of the invaders with Roy Thinnes on television, where similarly that was exactly what happened. You know, the craft came and right. they took over human bodies. I don't know. I mean, I've talked to so many abductees. I don't know. I you know, I haven't met anybody. But I think the closest on a funny note that I've ever come to what somebody might be a hybrid or somebody that's like, you know, coming back from another world was the person I met at the gas pump the other day, and they weren't too happy. But that's another story. But I don't know, Frank. That's one that I have to give a heck of a lot more thought to. But it's like the X-Men. Who, who was the character in there? I think it was a female uh, part of the X-Men or something. That She was like the hybrid that turns blue, shape-shifting. So I don't know all about that. Uh, well, we'll have to uh, keep an eye on that. And, uh, again, hopefully Dr. Jacobs will accept my yes. invitation. Steve, as always, the hour has just flown by. Thank you so much for the time this morning. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me, and good morning to all. Thank you. Be sure to check out the Dr. Sky blog at KTAR.com. I'll look forward very much to our next conversation.